Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? Maybe I believe in the team more than anyone else. I do believe that we have what it takes to finish top of the group, and that's what my ambitions are. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. Well, fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us on 53106. We're streaming the conversation as well. You can listen on News Talk and watch us on the Off the Ball digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store to download it if you haven't already. This is the Saturday panel. You're very welcome. We're reviewing the sporting week over the next hour with Clean O'Connor, the former All Ireland winner with the Dublin Senior Footballers and current coach across a range of sports. Shane Keegan, a UEFA Pro Licence coach and former League of Ireland manager and the sports writer with the 42, Gavin Cooney. Clina, Shane, and Gavin, you're very welcome to the show this afternoon. Cheers, Jamie. Thanks, John. Thanks, Neil. My introduction is very underwhelming, I have to say, compared to the other two. Listener, I've achieved nothing in sport, as, as John. As John has so uh, kindly elucidated there. But Gavin, you know, you're here for your eloquence and your intelligence <laughs> and uh, your insight over the next hour. And you're very welcome. Also, I think you're from Longford, Gavin, aren't you? I am indeed, yeah. My uh, Longford accent is. Does, does his lovely. accent not give that way? Does Longford have an accent? Well, <laughs> if, if Longford does have an accent, John, it's not what you're hearing coming out of my mouth at the moment. Okay. I lost it. I lo- it went somewhere around, I think around 2014. I, uh, I went to college in Dublin and I haven't been back since. So we think it was lost sometime around mid-2014. You haven't lost your accent though, Shane Keegan, that leash broke. No, despite I had 10 years in Dublin myself, John. I moved to Dublin when I was eight or nine until I had my leaving cert done. But uh, I was back in Leash every weekend. And if the slightest hint of a Dublin accent appeared, um, Cleaner, the good news is that both of us are dubs and we don't have to lose any accents. (laughs) Thankfully, thankfully, yeah. Novak Djokovic, folks, where else could we start? And obviously we'll speak about more serious issues later in the hour as we touched upon in the news round there. But uh, here's the timeline, folks, when it comes to Novak Djokovic, the saga, in case you've been on uh, Mars or Venus in the last few weeks, if you need a refresher. So in November, he was given a temporary visa to enter Australia to compete in the Australian Open, a tournament he's won nine times. He's unvaccinated. He tested positive for COVID-19 on December the 17th. A day later, instead of isolating, he met a journalist from a L'Equipe for an interview. On December the 30th, Djokovic received medical exemption from Tennis Australia on the grounds he'd recovered from COVID-19. Before entering Australia, Djokovic, via his agent, according to the player, ticked no on the travel declaration when it was asked if he travelled in the previous 14 days before coming to Melbourne. He'd actually been in Spain. On January the 6th, the Australian government cancelled Djokovic's visa. He was taken to a temporary detention facility. Now, at a press conference then, the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison read out a letter from Health Minister Greg Hunt to Tennis Australia from the end of November to clarify that COVID-19 infection and recovery from the same is not sufficient to allow entry to Australia. There are only two ways to get into Australia, be double jabbed or have an acceptable medical reason as to why you can't be jabbed. 
So on January the 10th, Judge Anthony Kelly quashed the cancellation of Djokovic's visa, saying he was agitated with the burden placed on the Serb to provide evidence of that medical exemption which had been granted to him. And then yesterday, Australian Immigration Minister Alex Hawke, who's got the power to do so, cancelled Djokovic's visa for a second time for health and good order grounds. He's set to be deported before the Australian Open starts on Monday. Nine-time winner, going for 21 Grand Slams. Gavin, has he been hard done by? Oh, um, no, ultimately, I don't think so. I did feel a little bit of sympathy for Djokovic toward the start of the week because right, whether you agreed with the fact that he got a medical exemption or not, he had been granted it. So some authority had told him, come ahead to Australia, you'll get in. Uh, the fact that the federal um, government and the border border force then uh, seemed to apply a different rules to Djokovic. And then the fact that he did seem to be kind of made a scapegoat for you know, a populist government who had other who were eager to distract from uh, their handling of other COVID issues made me feel a little bit sorry for him. And uh, then you read more about the detention centres and you become kind of horrified as to how people are treated on the border in Australia. But then in the last few days, obviously he won that initial appeal of um, of a technicality, really, rather than challenging uh, the, the overarching question of whether uh, the exemption was valid or not. But then you read about the fact that he's just, he's brazenly flouted COVID isolation rules. I mean, the idea that he flew, so he was met, he tested positive on, was it December 16th? Yes. That was the data on this test. He then flew to uh, flew to France or, or held an in-person um, interview with the L'Equipe journalist and has said that he didn't want to let the sports journalist down is the most laughable aspect of all of this. The idea that a, you know, a multimillionaire sports person would commit to an interview out of a journalist out of decency and thought and a thought for the journalists themselves is possibly one of the stranger aspects of this story. Uh, but no, it's it's very difficult to feel sorry for him now. So um I can under I feel like maybe he was made a slight example of out of uh, out of the, the government's eagerness for distraction. But look, he brought it all on himself. He's an idiot. Like he's just he would have avoided all of this if he just got the vaccine. Uh, and he hasn't exactly conducted himself with great grace um in the last couple of weeks either. So uh we're it, it's like an extraordinary saga. Like, I mean, the ESPN 30 for 30 from this. Uh, or nothing sort of... to declare even uh, if they have that show, <laughs> folks. But, uh, so that is all eagerly awaited, John, but we will have an answer now by tomorrow. I believe that uh, it's around 11.15 p.m. Irish time tonight that the, the final hearing will get underway. And it can't, like, because the Australian Open begins on Monday, this is it. We're, uh, we're quite literally into the tiebreak now. As my mother said, he's a bit of an agent. And um, when you organise a tournament cleaner at the start of a pandemic, which he did in Serbia and Croatia, when there was no vaccinations and there was much more of a dangerous strain in the world and we were really, we didn't really understand what this thing was fully. Uh, when you fail to isolate after testing positive for COVID-19 and when you fail to fill out the entry forms correctly, whoever you're blaming for it, don't be surprised if it doesn't go your way. I think that's a big thing, John. Like, Whatever, I mean, vaccines aren't mandatory. So he's he has the right not to get a vaccine, but there are consequences to that. So, you know, if if I don't get a vaccine, there are consequences. I, I'm asked for the, the, the passport going into a restaurant, et cetera. And we, we're accepting those consequences. But I think as... Uh, as Gavin was saying, as as the whole saga went on and, and his behaviour and the, oh, I ticked the wrong box on the form and I didn't nice it, all of that then sort of snowballs into, do you know what, you're just trying to work the system here, pal. Um, and 
do or don't get the vaccine, but don't don't try and fool people or uh, wangle your way into these scenarios when there's a whole lot of people in the whole country in Australia having to having to abide by the rules, whether they like it or not, you know. Um, but I do think it's becoming much bigger and it's, it's now a political issue and it's much bigger than Novak Djokovic and his opinion on, on the vaccine or his behaviours around vaccine and COVID. Um, and I think it's, he has been used as a scapegoat and this is a, is a, I suppose, a signifier of something bigger and a polarised opinion towards everything and restrictions around, around COVID and, all the, and the specifics of that in Australia. And unfortunately, there's a tennis tournament now that is a kind of in a bit of a shambles, or at least the start of it will be. Uh, but whether he, he he actually gets to play or not. Yeah, Cleaner's right, isn't she, Shane, that it's more about now, nothing to do really about a tennis player, it's about global state policy, freedoms in inverted commas, uh, how strict lockdown should be, does a global star get treated differently, which he seemed to have been, because there was a Czech player deported last week and he got the exemption, and uh, the Australian government, there's a, there's a populist element to it and the fact that they've got an election. Um, there's the Valentine Act over individual liberty versus protecting public health. This is almost like exploded into a debate around COVID more so than whether a tennis player plays in a tournament or not. Oh, it has, John. I mean, what happens on the, the court is going to be well and truly second to to everything that you've just described there now, unfortunately. It really, really is. And I mean, there's there's the two sides to it. You know, as as Clean says, it is his choice. Um, so it is. I, I saw one um, tweet from a, a guy on Twitter, Richard Ings. I think he's a, a former umpire or something like that. And when you when you put it the way he put it, you almost have to admire the courage of Djokovic's convictions. He said, if if somebody said to me. I have this vaccine here for COVID tested on 8.5 billion, assessed and approved by dozens of national government health agencies and proven to stop you getting seriously ill. If you take it, here's 2.5 million and a place in tennis history. <laughs> He's able to turn around and say no um, to all that is amazing, um, really, I suppose, from one perspective. But the whole thing around the interview, um, you just any sympathy you would have for him or any feeling you would have towards him, I mean, to do what he did, he had COVID last on, I think it was on the on the Saturday, which Saturday before last, the test positive on the Saturday before last. Um, you who unfortunately have to go into isolation, like absolutely everybody else did. Seven days late, eight days later, um, Leash Leash Warren Kilkenny out in the field, just out in my, my local town, Walsh Cup. I was mad to go out and 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 watch it. It would have been out in the open air. I took another antigen to see if there was any hope in hell that I might be showing negative yet and. The, the faintest of red lines was was still there, unfortunately, which meant, uh, you know, he wouldn't even take the chance of, of doing something like that. Um, so he wouldn't. But obviously he lives by a completely different set of rules, you know. 53106, a lot of listeners get in touch about Novak Djokovic. Hi, John. Novak should be sent back. He knew the rules, but ignore them. He's very stubborn, says Greta. Fabulous player, but his arrogance is a terrible thing. He should stick to peddling his anti-vax message on his own time and not disrupt the tournament on other players who do play by the rules. 53106, another texter. Australia's dead right. Why should the rich and famous be allowed to flaunt the rules we almost live by in this country? We would have rolled out the red carpet for him. This is why Australia is such a popular country. Rules are for everyone. I don't know if we would have rolled out the red carpet. I think Djokovic brought a lot of this on himself by almost boasting at the start of the circus. Did he really need to gloat that he had a medical exemption? 
especially when he was heading into a region with one of the toughest restrictions over the whole pandemic, says Barry. And remove the fact that he's a pro tennis player and the number one seed. If anyone else lied in their visa application, they'd immediately be deported or not even let into the country to begin with. He deserves no special treatment, says another of our texters. Well, he said there was a human error on that form which said no, that he hadn't travelled uh, before entering Australia for 14 days when he'd been in Spain. So he said it was a human error on the behalf of his agent. One thing that was very interesting that you touched upon there, Gavin Cooney, was the general treatment of people who are in these detention centres and the fact that this is going on every day in not just Australia, but other countries. And these are the people who are forgotten about. Yeah, I, I certainly, before this story kicked off, I wasn't aware of how, just how brutal the treatment of asylum seekers in Australia is. There's a, it's only a short enough news report in the Financial Times today. It was absolutely horrifying. You know, it uses the fact that Djokovic spent time in, in this detention center to, to explore the treatment of others. And there was a kid, there's a kid who's been trapped in one of those for, for years. He was put on a boat from, I think it was Iran, by his parents when he was 15. So they, they would like get the, get the kid out of the country to give him a better life somewhere else. Put in a boat when he was 15. He didn't have a decision on it in, in, uh, in getting on that boat. His parents just went and did it. And he's been trapped in a detention center since. And he's, he's actually quoted in the article as saying, sometimes I wish I just died in the ocean, which is absolutely horrifying. You know, so to, to draw attention to that, I think, and you saw this kind of really kind of crazy theater of protesters outside the detention center, like f- protesting different things, but united in the ultimate same aim. You had Serbian flags and like free Djokovic, et cetera. And then there was uh, Australian uh, protesters saying you must end end these detention centers, that they're inhuman. And obviously we have an uh, analogous situation in this country with direct provision, although I don't, I, I don't know which is worse, but I, I have to say you kind of, you have to see a kind of recoil in a kind of horror, I have to say, having uh, having learned about these detention centres in Australia through Novak Djokovic's, uh, through this story. So he has, I suppose, drawn the uh, uh, drawn the world's attention to this. I did see someone make the point that, you know, if you do it, like, because his public reputation is so, is so battered. Like, I mean, he went, it, it's taken a battering throughout all the pandemic, like you mentioned with his his public comments on vaccination. John, you mentioned the the Adria tour that he um, organised in um, across the Balkans in June or July of 2020. That you know it it could go some way of restoring his image by saying, well, look, I've done the world a service by highlighting this, and if he does play in the tournament and win, or however many millions he wins, donates the the money to uh, to to a cause um, with the ultimate aim of ending ending this kind of quite inhuman treatment of asylum seekers in Australia. Um, but that, of course, would um, involve Djokovic thinking of someone other than himself. And he hasn't showed that ability, I don't think, at any point in his career. It's true, isn't it, Cleaner, that he could statistically, and he probably will be the most successful men's tennis player of all time in terms of the number of singles grand slams won. But he'll never be loved as much as, say, Roger Federer has been or Rafael Nadal. It's not about stats. It's about how you conduct yourself. It's about the whole breadth and depth of who you are as a person and uh, then how you conduct yourself as an ambassador. Yeah, that's that's true, John, uh, when we think about our, our great sports stars. And it's something that I'm a little bit conflicted about because um, so here we have one of the greatest men's tennis players and he is he is deemed to have conducted himself in a in a negative way around the pandemic and 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 that. But but we've we've put him in that position. We've given him that. We as being the world has given him that space to to have that power. And when you think about it, I was thinking about today. You know, if I want 
information on whether I should take a vaccine or not. I'm not going to look up NovakDjokovic.com. I'm going to talk to medical professionals. Yes, there's a question of whether he could have some influence or promote this anti-vaccine sentiment, but, but we've put him in that place. And, and that's the problem that these great sports stars, we want them to be really good ambassadors, but they're not all going to be really good ambassadors. Simple as that. And you're kind of, we're lucky when when soccer players decide, right, I'm going to make a difference about uh, meals for kids in schools and I'm going to, I'm going to do some really good social work here. But there's no, um, there's no requirement to do that. You're hoping and crossing your fingers that they will use their influence for positive social change. But he has no obligation to do anything about asylum seekers in Australia. So you're, you're, you're hoping he might, but who knows? And, and that's part, like he's a tennis player and sports people are sports people. And they are in positions of influence, but they have no, uh, you're hoping that they use it well. Mm. And sorry, just to, to butt in, John, that's so interesting what Kleena says. And it's actually, you know, the, the perception, uh, like the whole legal case that's being taken now this weekend is based effectively on that assumption that Kleena is talking about, that sports people um, are, role models isn't quite the right word, but that their public, uh, that their sheer visibility can influence the thoughts and actions of other people, because the grounds on which Alex Hawke, who's the immigration minister, which just as an aside that this was literally referred to Hawkeye is uh, is kind of one of the curiosities of this entire story. But his his uh, his grounds for revoking his visa for a second time is his belief that Djokovic, as a, a very public figure who uh, is vaccine hesitant, shall we say, uh, might further foster anti-vax sentiment across, across Australia. Uh, it's the minister's contention that that is a risk to public health. Djokovic's lawyers have argued, well, uh, you're not giving uh, enough credence to the fact that de de effectively deporting him might further foster anti-vax sentiment. So that's, I've, I, it's such, it's a very interesting legal argument, I have to say, uh, but this whole thing revolves around it exactly uh, I, um, on the assumption of what Kleena has talked about there. And, you know, it's an assumption that should be contested, I think, um, anyway. 53106. Have you people actually looked into his background and what he went through as a kid in the war? You should start that before you call him. I, I repeat that. You should, before you start calling him selfish. Well, I think they're completely separate issues. Obviously, he went through hardship in the war. David Walsh chronicled it in the Sunday Times last weekend in Serbia when NATO bombed it in the, the late 90s. But it's got nothing to do with his actions around COVID, uh, which have been irresponsible. Um, hosting that tournament and then not isolating last month. It just shows to me a feeling that this doesn't matter and I'm a young, healthy person and we're grand. And it's interesting what Kleena said there, Shane Keegan, that we, maybe sometimes we expect too much from our sports stars. We're all good at certain things in life. Tiger Woods just happened to be a great golfer. Novak Djokovic just happens to have a brilliant talent for tennis maybe we should stop putting people on pedestals that don't deserve to be on them. Oh, that, that's a, to me, that's an absolute no brainer, John, you know, having sporting talent, meaning that you somehow become, um, somebody who should be held up in areas, other areas and other walks of life just is nonsensical really. And yet we continue to do it. Um, you look at, I suppose maybe rock stars and that and and that kind of thing music stars they seem to be given a pass in 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 some respects of oh well we expect them to be to be crazy and to be lunatics but i mean the vast majority of of people who are are are, are sporting superstars um 
outside of being very very good at their sport they're just an, an, a very very normal person who you know the Rashfords of this world are, are rare um, you know you see a few of them in our own country Philly McMahon I suppose is one that, that jumps out to me but they're they're the exception you know the rest just want to be let to live their life they don't want to be held up as, as role models and it's you know it's a kind of crazy quirk of the way we view them that we do you know yeah, Margaret Court is one of the most grand slams for women, but nobody talks about her. And if you want to know why, just Google Margaret Court. That's what I would say about that. Like uh, another f- texture 53106 here. Admire Djokovic's convictions. He deliberately went out and about with COVID. If he had real courage of his convictions, he would not have gone to Oz at all and taken it on the chin. But him first seems to be his way of doing things, says Lou. And for information, Novak has built more schools and given more to his charity than most. When you're calling him selfish, remember that, says another texters on 53106. Gavin Cooney, I think this is going to end like Roy Keane, as I said, at different circumstances, but like TV cameras, uh, uh, airports and uh, national outrage in Serbia and maybe beyond. Yeah, well, I mean, like the Serbian prime minister has interpreted this as a slight against not just Djokovic, but the entire people, of, but all of the people of Serbia and Serbia as a nation. And there's always been a feeling, and I don't, I don't think it's without um, fair grounds, that Djokovic has not earned the love or respect of the of the world that Federer and Nadal have done, just because you know he's not from the West, which you know there's all kinds of complicating um, and complex. Um, and but no less justifiable reasons behind that that we won't get into here. But yeah, like I mean, what a what a circus! I mean, the the world has convulsed around this story for the past week. But we will have an answer one way or the other by the end of the weekend. And then if uh, I mean, I was reading Professor Jack Anderson in the um, in the Guardian. He says it's it's more likely than not now that Djokovic gets deported. If he's not, can you just imagine the reception he will get? Uh, on Rod Laver Arena on Monday, whenever whenever he comes out uh, to play his match, it'll be uh, it'll be an, it'll be a new level of hostility. I think there, I think the crowds are capped at fifty percent, but it will sound like uh, there's uh, there's capacities at one hundred and fifty percent. Five three one zero. Jenny, can, Go on. can I can I ask you because you understand these things better than I do? Well, I, I was know. just looking there yeah, when we on. were when we were chatting about it. Um, the, book, the bookmakers still have Djokovic six to four favorite to win the Australian Open. How is that, or why is that, or is that just covering themselves, or um, maybe because he's still in the tournament? Um, but yeah, there might be value on other people. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't bet on tennis. But yeah, it's uh, an interesting thing to see. Um, five three one zero six. Uh, did any of your panel look up how much money Novak donated to the Australian bushfire fund? Twenty five thousand euro. He gave millions to hospitals in, in Serbia. Your bias is shocking. And he's not like everybody else. He's world champion. He deserves to be there to play unvaccinated or not. Test him every day if needed. He'll entertain millions of people around the world by playing in that tournament. He deserves an exemption. He's worked very hard to get where he is, says Lara and Ratoth. Anybody want to come in on that? Well, I mean, like the, the people of Australia would say that they've worked very hard to observe extremely strict lockdown rules. Yeah. Okay. Where does it end, Kleena, do you think, before we wrap up the Novak Djokovic part of the discussion? Oh, not dodging the question, but who, who knows at this point? We've seen so many U-turns and everything around COVID, and and now it's a COVID issue. So, so who knows? I think due due to the the overturning um, from from the Australian legal system and the immigration authorities, it doesn't look likely that they're going to back down in this scenario. That that's how it's shaping up to, and which is which is unfortunate because you want if the tennis tournament is going ahead, you want the best people playing. But everything that's gone before, I think, is making that very difficult. And the fact that they're, as I said, it seems like um, 
regardless of what Novak has done in other areas or other charitable things, it seems like he there's a lot of grey area here and and not just abiding by the rules that everyone else has to abide by. And that's what it comes down to. Keen O'Connor, uh, Shane Keegan and Gavin Cooney are with us on this Saturday panel between now and half past two. Get your text in on 53106. Any opinions? We'll read out any opinions as long as it's not libelous or... Uh with bad language uh, just give you an update on scores Manchester City nil, Chelsea nil in the Premier League 66 minutes on the watch between the top two of the Etihad Stadium and then in the Kenna Cup in Ulster in senior football it is Donegal three points Antrim one point it is Tyrone two points the All-Ireland champions Armagh one five so Tyrone not starting the season well and Fermanagh one point Derry four points the Munster Hurling Cup uh, semi-final Clare three points Waterford five points at Cusick Park in Ennis and also in the O'Byrne Cup matches starting at 2 o'clock Longford against Dublin at Pierce Park Loud against Offaly in RD and Leash versus Wicklow at Crediard and Meath take on Wexford in Ashburn at 5pm Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk is back after the news The Saturday Panel on Off the Ball this is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five. You can text us 53106, tweet us at Off the Ball. This is part two of the Saturday panel. Joined, delighted to be by Clean O'Connor, the former All Ireland winner with the Dublin Senior Footballers and current coach across a range of sports. Shane Keegan, a UEFA Pro Licence coach and former League of Ireland boss and the sports writer with the 42, Gavin Cooney. You can listen on News Talk, watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball, for Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app or streaming the conversation. You can text us, as I say, 53106. Kevin De Bruyne from Belgium has scored for Manchester City 1-0 against Chelsea in the Premier League is this the goal that wins City the title the meeting of the top two City won at Stamford Bridge and now they lead at the Etihad Stadium 75 minutes on the watch he ran at the Chelsea defence and he whipped the ball into the far corner of the net Kevin De Bruyne and Gavin um, for many years I was calling him De Bruyne and then I met a Flemish lady in a bar one time and then she uh, corrected my pronunciation and it's it's funny how we for years can go uh, by uh, saying somebody's name incorrectly but um there you go mm, yeah I, I i had not got on board with the uh like what seemed what seemed like the europe wide ever to correct the pronunciation of kevin what is it kevin de bruyne is that how do we say it? kevin de bruyne yeah good de bruyne okay yeah so it's, I've it's, heard, it's, i think it's kevin brown in in english um okay well well the, the flemish version is far more impressive it is, yeah, it is. But a huge uh, goal for Manchester City, who are now on track to win their 12th league game in a row. And they're, they've gone into that turbo boost, as they tend to do in the middle of seasons under Pep. And uh, can they do it in the Champions League later in the season? But Chelsea still have time, 15 minutes to go to get a goal back or possibly two at the Etihad Stadium in that Premier League game. We'll have full reaction to that on Football Saturday with David Myler, Dan McDonnell and Johnny War between three and five. At the moment, we're reviewing this sporting week. We've spoken about Novak Djokovic between half one and two. Just read out some of the texts that are coming in still about that because it's an emotive topic. Peter says that 56% of ICU patients in Ireland are non-vaccinated from 6% of the population who are vaccinated or non-vaccinated. Transplants have been cancelled because of the non-vaccinated. Totally unacceptable selfishness from Djokovic if it's his choice for sure. But he should get the response that the majority of society favour and he should accept that like we accept his right to refuse. Another texter, 53106, a friend of mine who grew up in Eastern Europe explained that vaccine hesitancy there stems from their communist history which bred mistrust of authorities. Interesting, I thought, says Orla in Galway. Connor says that I'm not in any way an anti-vaxxer, but we have got to understand that a lot of Eastern European people are against vaccines because of the regimes that ruled those countries for 50 years and the way they treated their populations. And another texture, Novak uses the best of modern science to keep himself in the good condition he is, but he decides against scientific advice this time. 
on that, uh, this is going to be apparently on Netflix. Uh, they've started filming around the Australian Open. Look, Drive to Survive has maybe changed the way sports and The Last Dance as well. These documentaries have given us a, a new window into, into sport and, and the, the people who play it and the stars that, that we all watch every week. And maybe it's because, Shane Keegan, that it's become so sanitised. Now, you were a manager and I suppose you'd, you know, you had the whole media on um, alert to what you did at Dundalk, for example, when you were coaching there or, or managing clubs. But it's become so sanitised, become so pre- protected that everything is just anodyne. And the drive to survive was so refreshing and giving a bit of light into these people and getting an emotional connection with people again, as we would have had a lot more so 20 or 30 years ago when we looked to sports stars because there was a lot of suspicion then of the media. So will it work for tennis? Will it work for golf as well as it's worked for Formula One? Although you could argue with Formula One, it ended up not working and backfiring with the way that season ended. Yeah, I, I look, I think it's great, um, you know, as sports nuts like we all are, any of these kind of things immediately sound intriguing. And um, look, as you say, we, we get so little of a, of a real look behind what's actually going on in these people's lives, be they, they motor racers or, or, or golfers or, or soccer players, that we're, we, we want to latch on to any slightest glimpse that we can, we can possibly get. Um, and look, I, I I absolutely loved the Manchester City and and, and the Tottenham ones. Um, I know people will say, ah, look, they were watered down, and people are inevitably always conscious when a camera is in their face. But it still gave it. It I I felt better educated about the setups and certain individuals than before those documentaries began. Um, I I think the golf one is is going to be really really interesting. I'd be one of those people, John, who would be more interested in some of the personalities in golf than I would be in the actual sport of golf so this definitely appeals to me I think there are I mean particularly our own ones now I know there's no talk of, of, of McElroy or or, um, or Shane Lowry being involved yet it would be great to see them get involved because I think we've you know you throw Parry Harrington into the mix as well and we have some fan- absolutely fascinating individual personalities involved in the game of golf over here and um, you know if this gives a proper look behind the scenes and you know you they, they aren't constantly conscious of a camera being on them and being PC correct um, then I think it could be really really enjoyable I, I would still argue that the best one I've ever seen is is a year till Sunday I just thought that was <laughs> that always was, what, what's a, that educate me on that a, what's that do, do, you, do you remember the Galway footballers um, Pat Comer was okay. uh, was was the sub keeper with them um, that year, and jo- dear John O'Mahony was over them. Ninety-eight. Um, Pat Comer, Pat, yeah, Pat Comer was was their sub keeper actually, and he was his his actual career was he was he was a, a filmmaker, um, and he basically recorded their whole journey and was lucky enough that they went and, and won an All Ireland in that year. Now, I, 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 if I remember correctly, I think he actually set out to do it the previous year and they got knocked out in the first round. So it didn't make for much of a documentary. So he went about it second time round the following year and, oh, listen, look it back up on, on I think you'll you'll get it on YouTube or, or that. It was absolutely brilliant and a proper, proper look behind it. I suppose it was a time before people were so self-conscious about their images maybe to a certain extent. But any kind of look behind the scenes like that, um, I, I, I do find them entertaining I have no doubt that while I'm not a golf note I will end up watching this 
Gavin Cooney, uh, when I saw Paul Pogba in that France documentary about the World Cup, I found it really interesting and insightful and in how much of a leader he was. And then when I see his Instagram page, I want to just throw my phone out the window with the, <laughs> uh, the, the filtered nature of it and just the preening in front of the camera and, uh, you know, how, how many games he's actually play for Man United every year and every season. And kind of, I find it infuriating, to be honest. Um, golf generally like unless you're going to Paul Kimmage article you're not going to sometimes get the insight into golfers and there's some really interesting characters in this and Harry Higgs being one of them who I'm, I'm really interested in seeing and like Jordan Spieth's in it and Ricky Fowler and Bubba Watson and Sergio Garcia um, I'm hoping it's going to be better than Brooks and Bryson because that for me was contrived nonsense so I'm hoping golf has learned from that flop and uh, we'll get something good out of this Oh, I fully believed the Brooks Bryson thing. I thought they genuinely didn't. Oh, I, I genuinely thought they didn't like each other. And then, as it turned out, it was all, it seemed to be like a confected rivalry to make millions at that event that Woods and Mickelson usually play at. What's it called? Like, it's not the contest or something. It's, it's, it's a the match. Like, the match, yeah. So I was very, I was very disappointed with that. I, I don't agree with Shane that I, I watched the Man City All or Nothing documentary. I, I thought it was a bit of a slog. There's just there wasn't enough jeopardy in it. Um, although I have to say I'm sad that we have been uh, thus far denied the all or nothing behind the scenes at Dundalk around Shane's time because that would have been, <laughs> <laughs> been one of the great. Gap. <laughs> it would be one of the great sports. A lot of court cases, I say. Look, uh, look, anything, anything like we watch sports. Shane touched on it there. Like I mean, we watch sports often for the personalities rather than the sports, the execution of the sports itself. And in recent years, because of how tightly controlled media environments have become, we've just not been able, we've not got access to the personalities behind the sport. We just don't know these people. So that was the genius of Drive to Survive in, in Formula One. It, you got to know um, the drivers involved and it made a drama out of who would finish fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Like we have, you know, fine drama in who finishes fourth in the Premier League. And that's like, I mean, I'm sure I, I am the, like most of your listeners, uh, watch Formula One when Peter Collins was presenting it on RTE, then didn't watch it for a good 12 years, and then watched Drive to Survive, thought this is absolutely incredible, and then followed this season. The problem that uh, F1 has got now, it seems that maybe the actual sport itself is now being adapted for the TV series rather than the TV series just reflecting what happens uh, on the track and, and off it, as we saw with the end uh, to the championship in Abu Dhabi. So I think I'm looking forward to the golf one. Like I've got a lot more out of golf majors in recent years from like listening to uh, your own golf uh, stuff and the likes of like No Laying Up podcast, which just kind of gives you a little bit more insight into the uh, the personalities on the tour and those who are further down the leaderboard and so on. So anything that introduces me to personalities more, I'll, I'll absolutely go for. Whether, you know, the behind scenes banter between American golfers is exactly what I want to be spending with my free time. I'm not sure yet, but uh, I'll be like Shane, I'll be watching. Yes, yeah, so the Phil Nicholson page, I haven't really warmed to, I have to say. I, I found it cringeworthy at times. And But I do think this, the, 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 this, I don't think it'll turn out like Formula One where actually... People are questioning after the last race in Abu Dhabi, is this become entertainment rather than sport? Have the rules become cloudy? And that is a serious issue around the integrity of the sport. They should have let it just behind the safety car until the end. And that would have been fine for me. But would the Netflixization of it have allowed that? And I think golf has struggled with participation rates. And if it does appeal to a younger audience and gets people playing golf, um, then all, all the good for it. Kleena, would you have had people's eyes open if they'd been in the dressing rooms for the Dublin Ladies Footballers in 2010 or in recent years with the Dublin Hurlers or any teams you've been involved in 
would it work for Gaelic Games as it did for the Galway footballers? The the same the same company that did the, the Galway football documentary actually did Blue Sisters, the ladies football documentary a couple of years ago, um, which was received very well. Um, and a lot of people said it gave a, a really good insight into the, the background of the group and and the culture of the group and, and just what their lives were like. And all this is that. Dublin, uh, is it? Because I didn't see this, this. sorry. Yeah, this is Dublin ladies, yeah. And uh, the ladies footballers, uh, I think it was maybe two or three years ago. And um, they, they did a Blue Sisters documentary. Um, so I think it, it can work in GAA. Um, I think it can work in any sport. I think, um, Gavin, you're making the point there about you know, whether the game is good or bad or the sport itself or the, the, the whatever it is, the match is good or bad. If you understand the personalities, you can add a whole other narrative. Even if it's a nil-all draw, all of a sudden there's a whole other story that makes it entertaining. So you can see why these documentaries are now, they're kind of a staple of the, the sports industry and the entertainment industry now because they're popular. And exact same for me with Drive to Survive. Couldn't have given a fiddlers about uh, Formula One, knew nothing about it loved the documentary, still wouldn't sit down through a whole race. I have no interest, find it incredibly boring. Did you watch the, did you watch the end did you watch Abu Dhabi though, uh Kleena? I was I was it was interesting you say that I was in an airport uh with a uh, an under Irish under twenty one hockey team at the time and there were people huddled around these iPhones watching the last bit of that race. All of a sudden big Formula One fans, this was this was unbelievable stuff. Um, all these young women huddled around iPhones to watch to watch that race. Um, I personally didn't. I looked over someone's shoulders for a few minutes and was like, ah, I'm sure I'll read about it tomorrow because I'm not that invested. Even though I like the drive to survive, I didn't buy into the sport in general, but I thought the documentary was interesting to watch as a piece of entertainment. Um, and I, I think that's what it is now. It's entertainment. And we're not going to go back to 20 years ago where all of a sudden people are going to forget about the cameras and it's going to be nice and natural. You can be sure the golfers or tennis players know rightly that the cameras are in the room and will will act accordingly, even though you might get a better insight, but they still know the cameras are there. They're professionals now. They know how to deal with the media. Shane Keegan, I think it's a good thing that Rory McIlroy and Shane Larry are not involved in this because I think it would be a distraction for them. Would you agree? Um might be a good thing for them it's not a good thing for us as viewers i suppose is probably yeah. the way I'd, I'd, I'd sum it up jd i i i i lap up every particularly mcelroy i i just can't get enough of, of reading again nothing to do with his golf i i don't want to know how he did in a tournament well broadly speaking i i i just find him a complex character um he would you know take stances on things or come out with things that sometimes i would massively agree with and sometimes massively disagree with and and that kind of is what makes him so intriguing i i love that he's so much his own man um very very not very very much not a sheep um and i i just think any kind of extra insight that you could get into a fella like that would be would be brilliant um look would it you know would a camera in your face as you're 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 going around the place be a bit of a distraction i suppose it probably would i suppose it probably would um but it's obviously not going to be that much of an interference or else uh, all of the rest of them wouldn't have signed up to it, I suppose. OK. Johan van Graan, Gavin Cooney, do we owe him an apology? Do we owe him, owe him an apology? For, for what? For um, 
you know, the, I suppose not we in, in the panel, but does he deserve a bit of credit? I suppose maybe to rephrase the question, uh, given like he got a, a bit of turbulence about Johan van Graan in the in the Munster circles over the last couple of weeks, and they went to cast last night and they won and they won well. Yeah, I kind of very interested to hear. Like he's been given a lot of time. I can't remember too many high profile Munster figures being very critical of him across his time uh, in Munster. And now it seems to have kind of been precipitated by the fact that he's leaving for Bath. I mean, the fact that, you know, he's walking out of Munster rather than, you know, Munster uh, cutting ties with him, that would naturally lead to some controversy and some kind of um, ill feeling among the Munster commentariat. I think, look, I'm, I'm not, I don't watch rugby extremely closely, so I, I will preface um, my comments with that. From a kind of my hurler on the ditch perspective, I think he's done all right. I mean, my, my talking to my colleague Gary Doyle, he, he said that uh, you know his win rate is about eighty percent, like it's pretty good. But Munster have fallen short in the uh, in the bigger games under his watch, as they have under a succession of coaches. Really, back to back to Declan Kidney's time. Really, was the last person to deliver uh, to deliver certainly in Europe. But who was the coach? Well, they haven't won a tour. Haven't won a competition in over a decade. I think it was that's a, correct. Yeah, twenty ten. McGahan in charge then or sorry I'm getting confused with my succession of Munster coaches so he's not any more of a failure than some of those who went before him for instance uh, like um, maybe like had Razzie stuck around maybe he would have been more successful um, I like a lot of the contrary like a lot of the criticism has now been precipitated obviously by his decision to leave and there's a question like well is his decision to uh, announce his exit and the fact that he's going to Bath right off the Munster season and i Based off the sample size we've had so far, I don't think that that's fair because Munster have shown, you know, to their to their eternal credit, have shown real guts and real um, courage in winning the last two games that they've won from 14 men against Ulster and obviously in difficult conditions and cast. I think that their struggles in that game are probably more a legacy of Van Grand's coaching and the fact that they're not the most expansive attacking team in European rugby, uh, rather than the fact that he's uh, he's he's announced that he's leaving. Yeah, I'll just correct myself. A 2011 Celtic League final was the last trophy they won clean. Uh, it seems that the players are still bought in. Like The players are going to go for this, obviously, to, to do as well as they can in the United Rugby Championship and more importantly in the Champions Club as they did last night. So, look, um, there's a disquiet. I, I just feel there's a little bit of a disconnect at times from what the Munster was, which is huge romantic story, winning those uh, European Cups and the stand-up and fight. And they had that very much a singular identity and you now have World Cup winners there. You have Johan van Graan. And it's just another very well professionally run, coached rugby franchise. And maybe maybe that connection needs to be established more again in the future. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, that's my kind of feeling about it. I think you're probably right with that. The monster that we, as you say, romanticise in Ireland is that really, really strong cultural fortress down there and, and all the stuff that goes with that and, and their narrative about what monster rugby is. Um and it's it's evolving, and there there are more people coming in and out of it. And, and this is a professional rugby coach. People move jobs all the time, and I think that it got a little bit. Uh, people were a little bit. Oh God, he announced it in the middle of the season, and and how does that make players feel? Because in team sport, you you very much run and and us against them. When you're there, you're there, and we're all in this together. So, of course, you've been part. I've I've been part of teams and been coached by people who you kind of know that this is their last. Um, season and they won't, won't, won't going to be with you but you don't really you don't really bring that into the dressing room and it doesn't really affect you because you sort of say okay we're all in this together and we're trying to do the best we can but when someone has when you know someone is going to leave and, and they're not they're not behind the door about saying it it, um, 
it's just, I suppose it's strange for team sport in Ireland, but that doesn't mean that he's doing any less of a professional job or because of course you're a professional coach, you want, you want your team to play as well as you can and succeed. So I think it's just something we're not used to and probably doesn't align with what we can conceive of as Munster, which is very much, you know, they're a very, very tight group. It just seems a little bit at odds to what we, what we envisage when we say Munster rugby. And Razzie obviously left as well uh, before time to go to South Africa with obviously good reason. They won the World Cup, didn't they? Manchester City beating Chelsea by goal to nil. Kevin De Bruyne uh, with the goal on the 70th minute. That's the title, isn't it, for City? You'd have to think Shane Keegan. It is absolutely, John. Yeah. I've also just been distracted by my phone here telling me Spurs and Arsenal is off tomorrow. Oh, okay. Um, well, maybe that's a good thing yeah. for Spurs fans. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's the title. Look, I think it was... You know, we'd probably been clutching at straws to even claim there was going to be a real title race, even if Chelsea had gone and won that one today. But that's definitely the final nail, all right. Yeah, it's been an incredible run for Pep and his team. Uh, the engineering efficiency, I would almost call it, uh, 12 Premier League wins in a row. Raheem Sterling there and Phil Foden congratulating each other. Like if they don't win the European Cup this season, the Champions League, they'd be very disappointed because the way they're playing, they are streets ahead. They are. Look, they're, they're, they're absolutely fantastic, John. They really, really are. He's taken it to another level altogether. Um, and, you know, I was actually on with Owen yesterday morning and we were just chatting. I was saying one, one of the biggest um, pluses for them and one of the most impressive things about them when you compare them to every other side probably in, in world football is there is absolutely no over-reliance on any one individual. Uh, it really is such a collected effort, collective effort at the moment. He, he almost seems to be able to pull any 11 names out of a hat and, 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 and place them in different positions around the field and everybody knows the job everybody knows the job description of, of the position that they're placed in and it seems to seamlessly run um, regardless of whether Foden is in or out or Grealish is in or out and I mean the amazing thing is I haven't managed to see today's game now and obviously he's gone and got the winning goal but I would have said probably still the most talented player within that setup is Kevin De Bruyne he's had a relatively quiet season up to date um, so he has so if he clicks and kind of rediscovers his absolute top form that could take him to a whole other level again so yeah they'd have to be have to be disappointed if they don't go all the way in the Champions League this time around John Fantastic uh, goal to win it, uh, worthy of any game Shane uh, from Kevin De Bruyne and you talked about Rory McIlroy there and you know your fascination with him and all that kind of thing how do you feel about Manchester City? They're owned by nation states, the United Arab Emirates. We know there's unlimited reserves. Um, it is a degree of bought football. Um, look, that's not Pep's fault or the players' fault or the people who support the club's fault. Um, it's the Wild West. It's the uh, fact that the, they can do it. They're, they're within the rules. But do you feel do you feel good about Manchester City as, a, as an entity? Ah, look, John, I don't know what what it says about me. It probably maybe shows a little bit of a lack of depth in my character and that, but when I turn on the TV, I'm I'm fascinated by, by what City are trying to do with the ball. I'm fascinated by yeah. what what tactics um Guardiola has chosen for the day and, and I'm fascinated by what's he doing on the training ground from week to week and rightly or wrongly you know I probably do find it relatively easy to shove all that to one side um, just because I'm so obsessed with, 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 with what is going on on the pitch and that tends to be the case with everything with me it's why you know the Djokovic situation you know it, it all becomes very tedious and even stuff like drugs in sport I know they're massively important issues but I will just always be far far more interested with what is happening in the actual sport on the, the field of play or the court or whatever the sport is Um as I say, look, I'm probably not covering myself in glory there, but that's kind of my take on it, yeah. No, no, there's a degree of escapism. Like, for, like we all have 
tricky lives day to day and we all have uh, ups and downs and challenges. So I can understand that completely that, you know, sometimes sport is a refuge and it, it does um, uh, enable you to switch off and see the joy in things and the beauty of the way, say, that Manchester City play the game. Um, just to finish, Ashleen Murphy and uh, the grief of a nation, I think that the nation is grieving. Um, I don't remember a tragedy generating such emotion across Ireland for a very long time. The sadness, the shock, the anger that's out there right now. Our thoughts are with Ashleen's family and friends, her community in Offaly. She was 23, a primary school teacher, a musician, a camogie player with Kilcormac Kalahi. Most people, men and women, are horrified that this happened in Tullamore this week. A young lady goes out for a run in broad daylight and she's murdered by a man. How can this happen in a civil society? Uh, Kalina, it is senseless. It is unspeakably sad. Uh, yeah, John, it is. Um, and um, there have been a lot of very articulate, educated, um, and I suppose clear-minded women either writing or talking uh, about this over the last couple of days and people who've who really made it their life work to to kind of improve the scenario for women in society um and i suppose as an irish woman it's like it's, it's very difficult to get your head around it because you you're, you're you're constantly given different messages as a woman when you're going about your your daily life and and in terms of um abuse and violence and rape and harassment and all of that sort of stuff you you kind of you get taught um specifically or just by life about how to kind of be nimble and and be aware um and you know sometimes you get messages about uh, sexual abuse and say do you know what it's it's often people you know so be careful about uncles and brothers friends and and someone the family knows and all this sort of stuff and so you're very, you're kind of always vigilant as a woman. And just there's a little antenna that's sort of, okay, how do I, uh, what's, what's the situation that I'm in? You're trying to read things. You're, you're careful. You, you, um, you modify your behavior um, all the time, where you go, all that sort of stuff. Um, and and this, this one, I, I'm trying to put my finger on why this seems a little bit different. And maybe it's because... Um, I, I love crime dramas, uh, and you watch all these, these Scandinavian dramas and stuff. And, and a while ago I stopped watching them because the opening credits and it's a wood and, and I'm like, okay, the, the woman is going to be uncovered. I wonder in this episode, would she be blonde or would she be a brunette? Who will be the murdered woman? And I was like, geez, this is entertainment now. And every time it's a murdered woman and that, that sort of senseless, as you say, senseless killing of a woman. It's something that for me, that's the, the, the crime drama and it's it's uh, it's something out, out there and maybe unrealistic. Well, two days ago, that bit of me that says, oh, that would never happen, that's eradicated now. Because 4 p.m. into a more, someone's gone for a jog and she's killed. She's not harassed. She's not intimidated. She's actually killed. So now that impossible bit or that thing, you think, oh, no, that, that wouldn't happen. That, that's now happened. So... All the things that you're taught as a woman that you should be careful of. Uh, now, now I'm thinking, God, they're all true. They're really true, and you, you've got to mind yourself. And it's bloody tiring, and it, it's it's emotional, and it's it's powerful for Irish women at the minute because people talk about this watershed moment, and and is it? I I, I hope it is, and I hope we are using that word correctly, and I and I hope things are going to change. 
and I feel that maybe someone on the late late last night talked about being an individual a vigil and talked about it being a um, a quiet determination and maybe we've been quietly patient for things to change for a little bit too long maybe that that determination needs to be a little less quiet and needs to be a little less tolerant um, I'm, I'm I don't have a specific answer of what needs to change but I I know that that this seems like a moment for, for Irish women where we're, we're just enough is enough now we're sick of it how much worse does it have to get there was an important conversation I heard from uh, Thursday show with Nathan Murphy hosting with Anya Kerr and Orla Muldoon and Maliki Clerken on what happened to Ashleen and women's safety and male aggression and I think there are a few things here there's like long term policy objectives about educating children and young males about attitudes the criminal justice element sentencing, sentencing is a two week doesn't need to be strengthened as a deterrent but then when you listen to that conversation on Thursday when you read the opinion pieces all over the newspapers in the last few days you're just reminded if you're a man of the vigilance that's needed for women to go about their daily lives basic human rights which has to change and 244 women have been killed over the last quarter of a century by violent uh, crime by men uh, in the state and um, it might not be about lights in parks or having cosmetic fixes. It might be a lot more deeper than that, and obviously it is, Cleena. Would you speak to women that you coach about these issues before any of this happened this week? Um, it will come up. Well, when you when you get uh, women together in, in groups, it, it, it comes up. Things like this happen all the time because women talk to each other about this. this and and uh, it was interesting. I was with a, a group of women last night who, after training, they were doing a review of the session, and then someone decided off their own bat, just said, "Look, I think think we should just take take a moment because we we all go out and we all go for runs, and and again, this could have been any any one of us." And um, it, it it's it, women are always talking about it um, because we always have to be be vigilant. And one of the things that struck me is is the normal the normalcy of, of vigilance. You kind of forget that you do that all the time. I might go out for runs all the time, mind you. And you do that without even thinking anymore because it's just part of how you operate in the world. And then I've seen a lot of um, tweets and quotes from men saying, I just went for a run. I didn't have to think about any safety. I just did this. And and then and me having a realization going, God, it's not normal that I should have to do, that I should have to be aware. That That isn't a given, but I've kind of adopted it as a given for the last 30 years. And maybe that's what struck me. It's like all these people who are my equals, another 40-ish year old man over there who goes for a run on the beach in Port Marnock doesn't do so with the same mindset that I do, purely because I'm a female and he's a male. Shane for the and Gavin, for the large majority of men who are appalled by this tragedy across the country, it does make us question ourselves. It, have I called out bad behaviour from my peers? Have I tolerated banter against women that maybe crosses the line unconsciously? Am I having these conversations with my sisters, my female friends, about what their reality is and what can I do to help, Shane? Yeah, um, I, I, I suppose I certainly would have been a bit ignorant to that checklist that I heard Anya go through on Thursday night's show. Um, John, it was amazing when she, she talks through all the different things she considered. Clean has touched on it there a little bit as well, but she must have spoke for the best part of five minutes through a, a full list, a, a checklist in terms of 
trying to look after her own um, safety when she goes out for a jog. Again, you know, I'm somebody who probably gets out about four times a week and that checklist doesn't exist um, in my world, plain and simple. It's, it's never even come into my head. And um, you almost feel, I don't know how Gab feels, you almost feel like you're not in an educated enough position to speak on this topic purely virtue of the fact that you are a male. Um, and no matter what way any man tries to think of it, they just cannot see this. And I don't see how any man can, can actually fully see this from a female's perspective properly. Um, I suppose the closest we will get to understanding it is maybe putting ourselves in, in the shoes of our dad and, and receiving news like that. Or, you know, it might be... It might be your daughter, it might be your mom, it might be your, your sister, it might be your wife. Um, but like, you know, my sister is a is a strong runner and gets out quite regularly, like, and there is no logical reason in the world why it was Ashling Murphy and not my sister in my head when I think of it like that. And it's just stuff like that, I suppose, that scares the living daylights out of me, you know. But again, as Cleanest says, what needs to change everybody knows something needs to change but what it is and how you go about it um the other bit i'd throw in there is is mental health you know it's it's hard to think that whoever perpetrated this crime is somebody who is has the full of their faculties about them is is there a mental health issue there it's not that it's a i'm not saying that excuses it absolutely doesn't but um, you know, if there was interjections earlier down the line in terms of mental health, sometimes could something like this have been avoided? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's all a bit much. Gavin? Yeah, I mean, my voice isn't particularly interesting on this subject, to be honest, but having read and listened to the various testimonies over the last couple of days, you realise that this is really just the product or product of a of an atmosphere or an environment or a culture that permits women to be seen as the dominion of men rather than as equals. So, I mean, how you change that culture and environment is a very, very difficult thing to do. You can only, I suppose, do what you personally can. And I'm reminded of the line, like, there is no there is no such thing as innocent bystanding. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're privy to effectively dehumanizing chat among a group of friends, are you going to call it out if you're seeing something like legitimately uncomfortable and horrible on a bus are you going to stand up and call it out and i think that's probably the lesson that is sorry that is a lesson uh to take from this from uh from my point of view okay uh well plenty of vigils happening across the country uh, in memory of ashley murphy today and may she rest in peace and Kleena, shane and gavin thanks for your thoughts over the last hour on the saturday panel take care and we'll speak soon cheers, cheers. guys thanks guys the saturday panel on off the ball